This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. I had something planned you know, for, for today. And um, I think some of you know that I've been uh, doing a, a retreat this week. And in the middle of the stillness and the silence, something else came up uh, insistently enough that I decided to, to shift. Um, though I think not too much. You know, so when we look right now at the world, we see a lot of disturbance to say the least, right? You know, climate change and COVID and the conflict in Afghanistan, the earthquake that just happened in Haiti. And there are so many things that are not in our control, essentially everything. And at the same time, we have practice. And by practice, I mean meditation, for sure, but all the many skillful means that have been handed down during now the couple of millennia that Buddhism has existed. And so practice gives us access to more options to respond to the many things that happen and that we didn't necessarily want or expect. Our practice gives us tools with which to meet the world. And because we had been reading uh, last week, Thich Nhat Hanh, and I used one of his phrases in, in the newsletter, the, the inside or the outside is made of inside, inside is made of outside, either way it works. I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how to work with the inside to work with the outside. And what came up very strongly for me this morning was bow, the power of bow. And that's bow with a B as in biscuit, bow as in prostration, bow as in an act of meeting ourselves and the world in a very simple way, in a very undefended way. And we're not a reverential culture, generally speaking, but bowing has been a part of all sorts of cultures since always. You know, there are, there are greeting bows in Japan, for example, or in India, right? Standing, palms together, what in, in Japanese we call gasho. And it's really one way to think about it is the, the bringing of the dualities 
that only exist in our minds, that exist in the world of form and the relative, and that come together in the absolute. And it's also a gesture of respect, a gesture of gratitude. There's genuflection, right? And Christian, in the Christian tradition, full body prostrations as part of Vajrayana practice. So, so the kind of Buddhism that is prevalent in Tibet and Burma and Nepal, and also in Eastern Orthodox uh, Christianity. There's bowing in Islam, bowing in Judaism. And, you know, in some Buddhist countries, it's not unusual for pilgrims to travel to a shrine, to tra travel to a stupa, or circ circumambulated, right, or a mountaintop, a, a, a spot that is considered a sacred space. And to travel prostrating all along the way. And, you know, keep in mind that the Vajrayana vow is a full body prostration, full as in your arms are fully extended, feet flat on the floor behind you. So you're, you're literally flat on the floor, forehead on the ground, as horizontal as you can possibly go, as flat as this three-dimensional body will allow. So imagine traveling sometimes hundreds of miles and doing a bow like that with each step. Why? Why would anyone do such a thing in the 21st century, right? The age of reason, of science, of fact, of experiment. Why prostrate yourself to something or some being that most likely doesn't even exist factually? And doesn't Buddhism not even believe in God or a higher being, a higher power anyway? Well, in Zen, we bow all the time. We do standing bows, we do seated bows, we do kneeling bows, full prostrations. We bow before work, we bow at the end of it to start the meal, to end the meal. Before you take your seat, you bow to the Sangha. We bow to the Buddha on the altar, you know, bow, 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 bow. And when I was at the monastery, one of my jobs at a certain point was to uh, train people. I thought it was going to be so much quieter here. <laughs> Can you hear the kids? Well, at least it's not sirens. Um, one of my, my jobs was to give people instruction to do the face-to-face -face teaching, right? The formal meeting with a, with a teacher. And as I would um, go over the sequence of bows, you know, and I would explain, okay, you're first you're bowing by yourself and you're doing a full prostration to the Buddha on the altar. So you're going all the way down and you always finish that with a standing bow. And then, oh no, you're, you do that with the person that was in the room uh, before you. And then you step forward and then you do a full bow to the teacher, but you don't finish the bow because you go down on your knees and then you have the interview. And then at the end of that, you do the standing bow because the face-to-face -face teaching is really happening within a bow. And then when it's clear that the interview is over, the teacher will ring their bell, you do a seated bow 
you stand up, then you do the standing bow. Then you go back to the door, you step aside. Next person comes next to you. Together you do a full bow to the Buddha. And as I'm talking, I'm seeing people's eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger. They're just freaking out thinking, how in the world am I gonna remember all of this? And I just kept saying to them, you know, it's okay. You don't have to get it perfectly. You know, we know this is your first time doing this. It's really okay. And really just when in doubt, just bow. Just bow. It's always a good, <laughs> it's always a good practice. And actually that, I think, serves in real, in, in real life, in, in uh, the rest of our lives as well. When in doubt, bow, even just in your mind. And so all of this bowing, some people really liked it. Some, you know, not so much. But, you know, here's the thing, whether we like it or not, really depends entirely on how we understand what we're doing, right? It depends on the movement of our minds. The motions themselves, the body doesn't mind one way or another, right? The body doesn't judge. You may be able or not to do it, depending on your own particular body. So physically speaking, it may be easy or it may be difficult for you to bow. But it's your feelings about it that determine how you experience this act. And this is true of everything. This is true of everything. As we go about our lives, our bodies perceive all sorts of things. Right? They see form, they hear sounds, they smell, they taste, they touch. And then the mind labels each of these experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. But this happens after the fact, very quickly after, but after, nonetheless. And so when I'm watching a sunrise by the ocean, it isn't even just my eyes that are seeing the sun coming up over the waves. My feet are feeling the sand soft underneath. My nose is smelling the sea breeze. I'm hearing the surf. And so my whole body is taking in this input and very quickly forms a picture that the mind calls sunrise so that I can understand it. So I can then talk to myself about it, talk to you about it. But in the moment of directly experiencing the sunrise, we're just experiencing it as it is, without filters. And my body acting as a conduit just lets that experience flow through. And unless I grab onto it in some way, it just, it just flows by, leaving no trace, no weight behind. And that's important to remember. The body has the capacity to do that. The body has also the capacity to remember, as we well know. But that is especially when we decide to label and categorize and put things in little drawers. And then the body can't release it. It can't move through. And so now consider a bow. 
you are standing, your feet together. And your body is kind of at attention, right? It's tall and stable, like a mountain, like Tadasana, mountain pose in yoga. It's not, um, I mean, there's an alertness to it, uh, an engagement to it. And then you hold your hands in front of your chest. And actually, in, in Zen, technically, they're really about a fist away from your, from your nose. Right? So your elbows are a little bit out to the sides, which, again, you have to do deliberately. There's an energy to it that's different than if you're doing this, like you're doing this, you're doing this. Right? There's an energy. And uh, I feel a, a care, a respect. And usually when you're bowing, there's a little bit of, a, of an inward gaze. I mean, perhaps you're looking at, let's say if it's the Buddha on the altar, you're looking at someone else. But otherwise, there's, there's a kind of inward turning, right? So you're, you're turning toward the body. You're turning in in order to take all of it in as well. So Dogen Zenji, 13th century Zen master, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but, but he said this about bowing. He said, you know, when you bow to Buddha ancestors, you experience miraculous transformation. When you bow to ancient Buddhas and present Buddhas in countless billions of eons, this is the moment of being wrapped in the Buddha's robe. Now, in Buddhism, you know, bowing is an acknowledgement of that part of me that is already awake. So I'm not actually bowing to someone else, to a more enlightened being like the Buddha. We have the image, we have a statue, we have a picture, because it seems we almost can't help ourselves. We need something to, to focus our attention. The Buddha himself said, do not make images of me. But we did anyway. But so when I bow, I am acknowledging my own Buddha nature, my own wakefulness. I am in that moment enlivening my own awakened nature. And so when Dogen says, that, that you bow to Buddha ancestors, I mean, who are they? And where are they? And he says, you do this during countless of billions of eons, all of these Buddhas and ancestors. I mean, how? How is that possible? Where are all these beings? But the reason we do bow and we do bow to something or to an image, I think, is because it does focus our attention. It lets us know that, it's, that there is something happening that is different from what happened before, right? Why? If every moment is perfect and complete, then why bow? Why show that kind of reverence, that kind of devotion? Why have an altar? Why chant? How are any of these miraculous transformation? Are they? Or are they just elements 
Are they just things? It's about just a gesture. You know, when you reflect of what happens when you enter a space and you do see an altar, any kind of altar, and you think of the associations that you have that come up in your mind when you see a Buddha statue, there's actually a little Buddha head right next to the little pool downstairs here. What do you think when you see a Buddha? And what do you think when you see a Buddha right next to the pool? And what do you think when you see a Buddha on the altar? Is it different? I told a story before that years ago, uh, I was, I don't remember what I was doing. I think I was just doing a work practice and, and visitors came in. Sometimes, you know, visitors would come into the monastery and um, I think they just came in before anybody saw them and they just walked right into the Zendo with their shoes on, which we normally don't do. They, they, you know, they didn't know. And so they just walked in. And when I saw them, I, I passed through the hallway. And when I saw them, they were taking pictures and one of them was sitting on Shugen Roshi's seat, on the abbot's seat, <laughs> right at the front of the room, right next to the altar. He was just sitting there, you know, taking pictures. <laughs> And I felt my stomach just kind of, you know, go into a knot. And then I thought, relax. They don't know. And to them, it's just a cushion on a platform. So it wasn't even on the floor. Uh, no, it was. Uh, no, it was on the floor. It was on the floor. And it's a different color. But, you know, how are they going to know? To me, this means something. And it's a seed that I hold in, in high regard, right? Because of the relationship I have with my teacher, because of all the, the, the liturgy that I've done around it, because of even how we always spoke about it at the monastery, you never drop a cushion on the floor. You don't you know, straighten it with your feet. Why? Because this is the Buddha's seat. And so you want to show it some kind of regard, some kind of reverence. And so is that in our minds? Is that in our body? Is that in the environment? Where is it? At the same time, I do think, you know, that a sacred space, you know, even if it's a corner of the room in your home where you have your cushion, you have some sort of altar, something that reminds you that something different can happen there. That is not that it can't happen anywhere else. It's just a little more difficult, right? Fundamentally, a bathroom, a garbage dump, a mall is just as deserving of our care as a temple or a church. But we create temples or churches or designate a corner in our room, a practice space, because it does do something in our minds, right? It reminds us there's something important happening there. So a bow is a way of saying, I remember that I'm perfect and complete, just as I am in this moment. I remember I have the capacity to be present to myself, to my life. 
I remember that the reason I practice is because I forget and because I want to be and stay awake. And I remember that it takes work. And here I am doing it. And so Dogen is actually exactly right, I think. Because when you do a bow with every cell in your body, every ounce of your awareness, it is miraculous transformation. It is a moment of bowing to past, present, future Buddhas. I've also talked about this before, but it, 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 this, this image has been seared in my mind, you know, that, that, that um, scene in the Brothers Karamazov where Father Sosima bows to Dimitri. So Dimitri, the eldest of the brothers, is having a fight with his father in front of all this peop these people. And they are so irate with each other. They're, they're practically hysterical, both of them. And at a certain point, Father Sosima, the, the elder, he just gets up and he's very, he's very old and frail. He just gets up and without a single word, walks up to Dimitri, stands in front of him and does a full prostration all the way to the ground, forehead to the floor. And Dimitri is so broken apart by this that he can't do anything but run away. And that in itself would have been powerful enough, I think, if Dostoevsky had just left it there. But then the next day, the, the younger brother, Alyosha, goes back to Father Sosima and says, why? Why did you bow? What did that mean? And Father Sosima says something so interesting. He says, I saw how much Dimitri was going to suffer. And I was bowing to that in him. I saw how much he was going to suffer and I bowed to that. So a bow is also, I bow to that, all those parts of me that I still have to bring along, that I still struggle with and fight with and don't like and resist. Those parts in me, those parts in you. Imagine how powerful it is. And this we did do at the monastery. You have a conflict with someone and you're asked to then bow to one another, to face one another and bow. Forget, I mean, the apology, all of that is, is there, but meet one another in that way. Meet past and present Buddhas. And so that is a moment of being wrapped in the Buddha's robe. I really love that image. You know, this, this is the miniature Buddha's robe, right? So the traditional robe goes over the, the shoulder. And in the, the warmer countries, certainly in India where Buddhism started, it, that was, it was the only thing that was worn. They, they had a, another undergarment and then just a, the uh, robe over one shoulder. And then in Japan, colder weather, more layers. And in Japan, they, in China, they, um, monks started working, which they didn't do in the Theravada countries. And it was impractical to do that in robes. And so they designed the Raksu, which is, uh, has the, the symbol, the image of a rice field. And every morning we place it over our heads 
and say, we chant that it's a, it's a uh, vast robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, right? So we're holding that above us and then we bow with it and we put it on. I do that reminding myself, this is a Buddha field. This is a Buddha field. This is a Buddha field. But now I have to do the work to tend the field. Sitting still is not difficult after a while. It's tending to our lives, to each other, to the planet. That's the real challenge. And we cannot do that in a disembodied state. And I was reading a, a, a portion of Reggie Ray's Touching Enlightenment. And he says, we're in the presence of a being, our own body, that is wise, loving, flawlessly reliable, and strange to say, worthy of our deepest devotion. I don't think that's strange. What is strange is that for a culture so obsessed with the body, we're mostly completely disconnected from it, right? We love our bodies, we hate our bodies, we primp them, we neglect them, we nip, we tuck them, we very rarely inhabit them. And so to show devotion means to show respect for the body, to listen to the body, as someone keeps reminding me, this body in this body. That when we bow, we bow in gratitude and in humility and appreciation for everything that this physical body and that the body of the universe gives us. And we acknowledge that there's so much that we don't know, but that we want to. So another teacher said, the mind is distracted, the body isn't. The body knows. And so we're, we're acknowledging this wisdom in a bow and letting it come forth. Because we're not going to solve our problems with a mind only, or we would have already. We have to bring the whole system in line. And so to close, Judy Leaf says in prostration practice, and um, both Judy Leaf and Reggie Ray were trained in the Shambhala tradition. Uh, in prostration practice, we visualize everything as included in one vast world. The lineage is before us. Our natural world surrounds us. Our friends, our family are at our side. Our enemies are behind us. Animals, crowds of people, and supernatural beings all join in. Nothing is excluded. And that's it. That's it. The entire universe is contained in Bao. And that's always true, but it only comes alive. It's only made real when there's nothing between us and the world. When we allow nothing to come between us. When everything that we are, 
everything that we think and we do and we feel when everything inside and outside bows at once. And the whole universe is right there. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.